On this month's Karen 10, we talk teenage issues with Dr. Matt Mikulak. Are parents of teenagers today equipped to deal with an ever-changing digital world and societal trends? Are the resources available to parents the same as they were once? And specifically, how do you get the teens off their phones, or should you even? And how much are the parents on their phones? But more to come on that. And what is the one thing that every parent of a teenager should do and the one thing that you should at all costs not do? You're listening to the Karen 10 Podcast, where we bring our alumni inside Karen University. And so we delve into this and more today with our guest, Dr. Matt Mikulak, who is professor in the School of Divinity and director of the Youth and Family Ministry Program. In addition to serving at Cairn, Dr. Mikulak has also served as youth pastor and pastor of English ministry, as well as a speaker at conferences and retreats. And currently, he and his wife, Michelle, who is also a grad, lead the youth ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in Bristol, Pennsylvania. Matt, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. How long have you been in youth ministry, Matt? Well, it's a good question. I started when I was 18 years old, so it's been a couple of or maybe four decades. It's a long so, time. a little bit of time. And I imagine in that time, you've seen a variety of changes in the way youth ministry is done. And I was particularly excited to hear what your response to this is, because personally, my experience with youth ministry is essentially limited to my own experience growing up uh, in the church. Um, I did a very small stint in sort of a interim capacity in youth ministry myself, uh, but then now with my own children, seeing them go through it. And so... My recollection of youth ministry has a lot to do. There were definitely some great relationships crafted there with youth leaders and others, but there's also a whole lot of like hell's bells and uh, a lot of, there was a lot of talk about uh, abstinence at that time. And uh, there there seemed to be like a real emphasis on uh, rules and on behaviors that we wanted to be sure to avoid, which in you know many cases was a good good message. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my my curiosity is, what have you seen over your time in youth ministry be a progression? I know it's a kind of a broad question, but I wonder if you can highlight some of those things that, from your start to the present, may have been some some real changes or some things that really have stayed constant. Right. I think one of the funnest things to think about are the style changes because we wore tube socks. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> oh, yeah. White tube socks up to our knees. A couple with the, of decorative stripes at the right, top. That's right, right. yes. Yep. Yeah, and I hear they're making a little bit of a comeback oh, now. Yes. Yep. But um, to see the changes in the styles, and as you look back at old photos, so it's clothing kind, styles, of, you mean. kind of hilarious. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's like real tight short shorts <laughs> and things like that. Embarrassing. So I didn't bring any pictures with me today. Right. We'll just post them after the podcast. On <laughs> actually, but we, would, we might. Do that. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> we have some. I would say the basic needs of teenagers really have not changed. Their need for a savior, Jesus, the the biggest need in their life has not changed at all. And as you meet with teenagers and get to know them, you can see that that is the greatest need in their life. The questions of identity: Who am I? That has really not changed. They still have a big question about that and are developing in their understanding of that. And then the question, where will I belong? Who will accept me? Who will love me? And this is a question that teenagers still are asking. And although the culture has shifted quite a bit, the basic needs and questions that teenagers are asking is still the same. The program, yeah, the program has changed quite a bit, I think. I think we used to, there was a time there that we went real high production, mm. you know, your lights and and big show. 
But I think even then we could see that that wasn't what they were looking for. They're looking for something genuine, something real, and especially a real person who will invest in them and tell them the truth. So that hasn't changed. I think what has changed outside the program itself are the, the cultural changes, the cultural context around them. So for instance, the breakdown of the family was evident those years ago, but now it's just everywhere. It's staring us in the face. And what's interesting is that although the family is, is very broken, many students, they're coming from families with a single parent or a blended family, or at least some trauma in their, their family history, What's interesting is that along with that, we also have parents that are very much coddling their kids. So although you have the breakdown and fragmentation, you have also this overprotection almost of students. Of course, another big change is the use of social media. So it has now become the primary vehicle of communication for teenagers and more importantly, the primary vehicle that they use for the development of their worldview, their perspective on life. So to underestimate the influence of that would be a big mistake in our culture today. It has served to really fragment their culture too. We used to think that technology would bring us all together, that we would have a pretty homogenous culture, everyone understanding the same things in the same way. But actually it has fragmented us so that now I tell my youth ministry students that really our goal is to reach students and we may have to reach them one at a time. Mm. Each one of them has their own music, their own favorite things on, on what they're looking at on their phones, and their, even their friendships are very fragmented and very fragile. So that is a big change. We used to be able to reach groups of teenagers and that was the draw, that teenagers mm. would love to come together to see all their friends and to hang out and now, as you may know, the mall is no longer the place to hang out because they hang out on their phones. Yep. And so it's a, it's a cyber world that's very fragile and not very real in many ways. And so teenagers, in a way, are, are very isolated. The most connected of any generation, but maybe also the most lonely, mm -hmm. the most isolated. So that's a big change. Mm -hmm. And I think it opens up an opportunity the other thing that has changed is the harmful exposure to pornography. It's something that was uh, you know, around for a long time and definitely when we were young, but the ubiquitous nature of it and the easy access and the fact that it's very addictive is a real genuine concern. I would say another big change that I've seen over the years is the change that parents and others have in their trust of the church. In general, in our culture, people are now very skeptical of the church and church programs. That's true for unchurched people as they view the church and as we have youth programs. In the past, it was always seen as a very positive thing for students to be involved with. Parents would encourage their kids, anything that the church had, they would encourage them to be involved. But now, because of the media, because of the highlighting of stories of abuse within the church, the church is viewed in a very skeptical way and even harmful that some families think, 
I got to keep my kids away from that because it's actually harmful for them. That's a big change. And even among Christian families, the investment in a spiritual support network like a youth group or, or a church, we see that they are more prone for some reason to find those kinds of support networks in sports or other affinity groups where there may not be the a parents very, even. yeah, even the parents, yeah. mm -hmm. where they may not even, there, there may not even be a very positive influence there. But for some reason, they view that as more advantageous for their kids, that their kids maybe will become popular through that, maybe get a scholarship through that. And as a result, they, they have prioritized that above programs where kids can really learn about Jesus. So I think those have been big changes. The thing that inspires me and encourages me though is that this generation, Generation Z, is very resilient. And I think they're, yeah, they're, they're tech savvy for sure, but I think the emptiness and the vacuum that's in their life will create an opportunity for the gospel. I really believe that. I think this generation may be the one where we see tremendous revival. Mm. That's my hope and prayer. You've highlighted a lot of very interesting changes and and uh, and content there. Um, it, can you say is there a way in kind of in whole that youth workers and those who are in youth ministry are attempting to pivot to adapt to some of these new changes? Is it, for instance, as you mentioned, more one-to-one -one ministry right. versus as a whole? Right. It's a great question. I love the way you phrased it because adaptation is the key. We, what we need to do is to have a strong biblical philosophy of ministry, to know what the Bible says about ministry and especially youth ministry, and then to be able to custom design a ministry, a program to meet the kids where we are. Each group of kids is completely different. And the way that programs will work with them, the way that we you know, reach out to them is really different. So we need an entrepreneurial attitude to say, I may need to create something that has never existed before. Hmm. A program that looks unlike even a program. Maybe it won't even look like a program. And as you said, maybe that means meeting with kids more personally, in smaller groups, in different settings, maybe around uh, hobbies that they have or interests that they have, creating an opportunity for mentors, not just the youth pastor, but maybe other people from the church who have interests in biking or who are carpenters and love woodworking or someone that's a swimmer or creating different avenues for sports where kids can have a natural connection with older, wiser adults who are deeply committed to Christ, where that relationship and influence can flow. So this is something that is, I, I mean, we should have always been talking about this, but it's more obvious now. In the past, it was easy to have a youth program that would reach most kids, but now we really need to think in a different way and mm -hmm. custom design something that may look very unique, and boy, that's difficult to do, but I think this generation can do it. These Generation Z uh, students that we have here at Cairn and the emerging generation, they really do have that mindset to be entrepreneurial, to create new things, new ways. So I think of any generation, they may be the most equipped to do that. So it may be the case that more and more, in the past maybe people were going into youth ministry and thinking, well, I wanna do what my youth pastor did. I like right. that, that made an impact in me. So let me come to Karen, get educated, and then kind of replicate that. Right. But we're headed for a direction now where 
you better not do what you, your youth pastor did. It, not entirely, but right. in part, you're going to have to create a new path because the the rapid pace of change is such now that uh, you certainly can benefit from that ministry, but you're going to have to come in and probably do something that looks pretty different. That's right. Yeah. Right. So a program that they were used to may have some effectiveness, but I would say they may need to create other avenues as well to reach kids that aren't being reached through that, and especially at a, at a deeper level. Many times in a youth program, we have some students that are in the core that we're reaching at a deep level, but most of them are attending, hopefully receiving some influence through that and some understanding. But truth is that many of them are not getting very deep with that. And then some that are definitely on the fringe that are not regular attenders, they're not buying in. We can create programs to reach students where they are. And I think some of them we read as unreachable or uninterested, but actually they may have great interest if we reach to them in the right way. Matt, I want to delve into one key issue that you mentioned, which is a new point of concern for parents, but also something that the teenagers are really wrapped up with, especially, and that is technology. How do you counsel Christian parents when it comes to their teens and social media and all things digital? Right, good question. I think when you begin to really ponder this question, one thing that we take for granted is that students can be taught how to utilize the tremendous resource that's available to them through technology. In other words, what I'm saying is that up till now, I don't know that we've taught them. I think they've taught themselves. And because they are digital natives, it's a natural thing for them to use the phone in a way that's comfortable for them, for them, a way that their friends use it, without thinking about the use in a wise way and with integrity. So let me back up and say this. I think the key issue for parents is to teach their children how to use this tremendous resource with thoughtfulness, with wisdom, and with integrity. And that can't start when they're teenagers. It's gonna to have to start much earlier. It was Andy Crouch, I think, in his book, TechWise Family, where he mentions for his own family, they set a family policy that there'll be no screens until they're double digits. So until they t t reach 10 years old, that they would play, and that they would play board games and other things like that to use their imagination. And although some families may even right now be laughing at that, thinking, how is that possible? I think it's a goal that we need to think about, teaching our children, even younger than that, two and three-year-olds. I have a two-year-old grandson, and I'm amazed at how quickly he wants to see his dad's smartphone. Mm -hmm. Now, he sees his mom and dad looking at their screen and doing something on there, and it must be very curious to him. So I think that he's very interested on what's what's on that screen. And when he does see it, I think you can begin to see the addictive nature of it because he that's all he wants to do. And they're really wise about their use of technology in front of him. But I think we need to think about it, even from an early age. Do we just sit our kids in front of a screen to occupy them while we can get our work done? Or are we teaching them how to navigate through it, to use it wisely, because it is a tremendous resource, thoughtfully, with wisdom, and with integrity. And I think there are a couple of key issues. The first one is modeling. Parents somehow seem like they are 
unaware of their own influence in this area, but their children are watching them. Even teenagers are watching their parents and how they're using the media, how they're using technology. And I don't know if a parent, if they've ever thought about this, to stop and try to look at yourself through the eyes of your teenager. Have they now been watching you for years, paying attention to your screen rather than them? Because it's teaching them something. Is that screen more important than they are? And I know that's a very convicting question for me, and it may be for you too, but this is a key question. How are we using our technology? What are we using it for? And I, I mean not just when we're in the presence of our children, but when we actually are apart from them, from them too, because that's what builds that integrity issue. Am I using this wisely to, to allow myself to do this for the glory of God, building trust all the way? So I think that's a real key issue. And it's not, a, it's not an easy answer, and yeah. you know, there's a lot more that we could say, but I think that's the key issue. Hmm. Yeah, it's great to take a look at how you yourself are using technology may be one of the biggest factors. It's the biggest factor, I believe. Mm -hmm. We do need to set boundaries because that teaches children something. Mm -hmm. But I think they need to be boundaries with a goal. Our goal is for students to learn how to use the technology Mm -hmm. with ever-expanding boundaries as we build trust, trust with our students. The more that they use it wisely, and they understand how to use it, then the boundaries can widen, which is our goal, right? Because our ultimate goal is to teach our children how to function on their own before God in a way that will glorify Him. Which is a great segue into the next thing I wanna ask you. (laughs) But let's pause for this brief commercial break. Thanks, Nate. My name is Tom Scherf. I'm the Assistant Vice President of Enrollment at Cairn University. I always love to share with people about Cairn's commitment to educating those interested in vocational ministry and the church. At Cairn, we strongly believe that our divinity programs will prepare students for youth ministry, pastoral leadership, and service in local churches that are focused on the Word of God. To support those of you pursuing service within the church, Cairn is offering the opportunity for new undergraduate students to receive up to an additional $4,000 in scholarship money if they apply to specific academic divinity programs. In addition, graduate students can save 50% off their entire Masters of Divinity tuition cost as well. These scholarships are available for a limited time, so we encourage those of you who are ready for what's next in your pursuit to serve the church to inquire today. You can do so by emailing us at admissions at cairn.edu. For those of you who are already serving full-time, we have additional scholarship and educational options for you as well that we would love to provide you. So please reach out to us today for more information by contacting us at admissions at cairn.edu. A lot of Christian parents really want to control their kids to ensure they don't get hurt or into seriously harmful patterns or behaviors. And I I really think this is, in almost every case, very well-meaning. And I mentioned earlier, you know, personal experiences, you know, where people are setting certain things in front of you and saying, you want to avoid this behavior, you want to avoid that thing. And you mentioned that there's this new kind of coddling, which probably ties in with some of this. So related to all this... Uh, for parents who who really 
which is probably most of them, Christian parents wrestle with that. How much do I attempt, I should say attempt, to control my son or daughter's behavior versus the perspective of freedom and decision-making? And you really sort of alluded to that there, but can you talk a little more about that? Right. I want to repeat that again. We need to have an end goal in mind. We need to constantly keep that in front of us because our tendency is to forget it. And that goal is to prepare our children for the adult world. If we lose sight of the goal, then parenting becomes something that has to do with my reputation. Are my children going to embarrass me? I don't want that. So as long as my kids aren't drinking, aren't having sex, they're good kids, then I don't really worry about what they do. Boy, there couldn't be much of a bigger mistake than that. Our goal is to prepare them to live a godly life in this world, to shine as a light in this dark world. And so they need to develop a biblical worldview, a deep appreciation for God's word for themselves, not because their parents have that, an understanding of theology and anthropology and salvation and sanctification, etc. I think that we make a mistake to think that our, that our children are not watching us, and so a key factor in all that, again, is modeling. Mm. And I think that we need to be wise about the boundaries that we set and the goals for those. If our goal is to super protect them so that nothing can ever touch their lives, it's an unrealistic goal and one that's bound to smother them. So you've probably heard there's been a lot of humor around it, but helicopter parenting. Mm -hmm. So parents that hover over their kids constantly, and the, the students definitely feel that. They feel that their parents are hovering. Well, that moved to the lawnmower parent, so where the helicopter was kind of a blade up in the air, now the blade has come right down on top of them, so there's no escape. There's, oh. there's no movement that they can make without this blade right on top of them going round and round. And that has now evolved into the snowplow parent, where parents will plow anything out of the way that's an obstacle to their children so that their children don't ever have to face any kind of challenge or difficulty. The problem in all that is that it's not teaching our children how to navigate in this world, and oftentimes, the greatest growth in any person's life is going through difficulties, not around them. Not having someone solve our problems, but having the responsibility and the ability to move through it wisely and to learn the lessons from that. So the question is, are we actually crippling our children by not allowing them to have more freedom, to have greater boundaries, and more responsibility. So I think that's the key, and that's it's so hard to do that. It's so hard to know where those lines are, but I think that there does need to be freedom, and that's what we need to emphasize. Not the boundaries, but the freedom inside the boundaries. And I don't know where this study came from, but someone did a study once with elementary age children, and they, they noticed that the children would uh, play inside the fence on their on their playground at school, and but it was a small area, so they said, well, let's expand it, we'll take down the fence so the kids can go anywhere they want to. So they took down the fence, and what they found was that the children played much closer to the building than when the fence was up because they felt insecure. And I think the same thing is true. We, we tend to not like boundaries because of the boundary itself, but actually it represents freedom within the boundary. 
And that's why God has set up for us the boundaries he has, and we need to help our children to understand that, that the boundaries are there for the freedom's sake so they can learn to navigate within there, and then we can expand the boundaries. And it's this is all theoretical, isn't it? When it comes down yeah, to right. our actual kids, it's a lot more <laughs> Sounds difficult. Sounds easy. Yeah. yeah, and it's not. Yeah. But I think to have that in mind is a key. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, related to that, I think is, uh, I imagine someone might be listening to to this who's a parent of a, of a teen and saying, well, that's a, that all sounds well and good, as we've noted, but particularly when it comes to spiritual matters, uh, the parent might say, I desire nothing, nothing more than to see my son or daughter grow up and uh, to love the scriptures, to love Jesus, to want to know him better and to live a, a life according to um, that which we've been called to do. One of my greatest fears is that that will not happen. And so the parent is doing all these things and making mistakes, but working very hard at trying to set out the right path and guide people along. And then there's the potential that that they will walk away from that, that right. they will go a completely different direction. Of course, there's the, there's the possibility that they're sort of continuing on the straight and narrow. To that general issue, how do you counsel parents? Right. Well, it's a it's a very important question and one that's very heartfelt, one that's that's very deep as far as our um, concern about that because we've seen that, haven't we? We've seen teenagers grow up in the church and then walk away from their faith. And we've seen the results of some of that too with those that we love so dearly getting involved in things in the world that have taken their life from them. So... It's a question that is of vital importance. And maybe you would think that my answer might be that we need better programs at the church. Maybe we need more effective youth pastors. But the reality is that the number one influence in any person's life is their parents. And my answer to the question is that each one of our kids makes their own decisions. We can't control that. They each will choose, but the more that we focus upon being a godly model before them genuinely, the greater the chance that that influence will transfer. And it may not happen right away. It might not be until they're 25 or 35 or 45, but I've heard so many stories of people that have said that what brought them back to the Lord or to the Lord in the first place was their memory of a parent that lived a life on fire for God, for God's glory in front of them. I remember more than one story of people telling me that they could see their mother on on her knees praying for them. And that's what brought them back to Christ years later. To live an on fire, 100% sold out, life for the glory of Jesus Christ. As Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die as gain is the most powerful influence in the life of any child. You know, I've noticed too that we can teach our children with our model through decisions that are made. And one of the most powerful is when there's a conflict in our schedule. So let me just give an example that our son or daughter's on a sports team, and although maybe not normally scheduled, there was a a rain out or something like that, and now the game is falling right during church or youth group time. 
and many families won't even bat an eye. Sports will win out without even talking about it because they made a commitment to that sports team, and for some reason they believe that that is much more important than our weekly attendance and participation in God's church. But when that happens, there is no more clear teacher to our children. They very quickly find out and figure out that sports are more important than God is, or at least that that's what they assume. I would say whenever those conflicts occur, it's a tremendous opportunity to teach. If you still decide that your child has to go to the sporting event, at least to talk through that with them, to say, God is most important. Church is important in our life. And in this one circumstance, we're gonna make an exception, although this is a difficult decision. That's different than just assuming that sports always win out. And I think one thing that's difficult is when parents actually plan for that to happen by enrolling their kids in a sport that they know is gonna be on Sunday and they'll have to miss a whole season from September to December of church participation, not only their child, but often they will too because of travel. And I just think that I'm just using sports as an example. It comes out in many different ways. Use those opportunities as a teaching tool. And I don't know if, if, I don't think my son would mind me saying this. I won't say his name so you won't know which son it is. But there are multiple options. That's right. <laughs> there came a time in our family's life where my son was a very good athlete, had an opportunity, he was invited to play on an exclusive travel team, but he knew it was gonna be on Sunday. And my wife and I were so proud of him because before we could even talk about it with him, he decided he would not play because he knew that God came first and he wanted to be in church. And for us, that was a sign that all the things that we had been trying to teach him became part of who he is. And I'm giving you a great example. Along the way, it wasn't quite so easy all along the way, but I think it's important for us to think about that. We, we need to be parents and our goal should not be to be our kids' friends. I don't know if that sounds crazy to some people, but God called you to be a parent to guide your son or daughter, to help them to learn to obey God and to follow his boundaries. And sometimes that does mean that we can be close to them and function almost like a friend, but we need to remember that he called us to be a parent, not just a friend. That will come later in life when they begin to navigate life on their own, will become more like a friend, but right now he's called us to be in that role as a parent. And I just wanted to say one more thing, Nate, and that is one of the most important things is to pray. Pray for your kids. Make it a practice to pray for them every day. Pray that God will lead them to a godly spouse at one point in their life. Pray that God will open their eyes to see his glory and to desire to spend time with him. Pray that God will give them a heart for himself and pray that God will use them in a tremendous way to bring light to this dark world. I think that daily prayer is powerful and effective. The Bible told us that. And I think it also does leave a lasting impression on our children when they know that we're praying for them. Okay, this might be an unfair question, but I thought, is there a way that you could give us something on what is the one thing that every parent of a teenager should do at all costs 
And what's the thing that at all costs a parent should not do? Is there any right. such thing that could fit into those? Not two really, categories? but <laughs> but I'll say I'll just repeat what I've said for the okay. yes for the yes part. This okay. is what we should always do: to seek and see and savor the glory of God through Jesus Christ by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. That's one thing we should all try to do. And I think we'll never be sorry for that. One thing we shouldn't do, we should never think that our influence stops. Some parents, when their children become teenagers, feel their kids pulling away. They realize they're able now to make a lot of decisions on their own. They don't seem to want their parents around. In fact, they may be very openly open about saying that. They may show that with their actions, but it's wrong to think that your influence stops. Even though you feel them flying on their own and they wanna be on their own, they don't wanna be with you, your influence still has great power and it may even be more of an influence now than ever. As a parent, and now my, my sons are married and each one of them has a son of their own. One's almost born, just about a week away. I can see that our influence, Michelle and my influence is still there. And what we do, the choices we make in our relationship with God and with each other still has a tremendous influence on them. So I think it's a mistake for parents to think, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. They're kind of pushing me away, so I'll just kind of leave them on their own and do my own thing. Keep pursuing that relationship. Keep offering your advice and keep praying for them. How about a few resources? Are, mm -hmm. there, are there some some books, some podcasts, some whatever that you yeah. would recommend that Christian parents check out? Yeah, just a couple of things. A great book called Age of Opportunity by Paul David Tripp. It's an unusual book because normally when people talk about their teenagers, they roll their eyes. And if someone ever has two or three, or I knew a family that once had four or even five teenagers at once, people say, oh no, you've got, oh, that's terrible. Well, this book turns that around and I agree with it. This is our greatest opportunity. During the teen years, it is our greatest opportunity to build into the lives of our children and it is an age of opportunity. So I love his perspective and his advice in the book. There's another book called The Space Between by Walt Mueller, and it is a, just a great perspective on those teen years, how special they are, a lot of the changes that will happen, but also the opportunities. So I really highly recommend it. We had him at Cairn, didn't we? Walt? Yes, yeah. Walt mm -hmm. Mueller is a friend of yeah. Cairn University, yeah. and I recommend his website. It's filled with resources. Mm and every week it's growing. It's cpyu.org. It stands for the Center for Youth and Parent Understanding. Walt is a tremendous resource to parents and to youth workers. He is, um, he's been in this for many, many years, studying youth culture and uh, evaluating resources. So lots of just a depth of knowledge, understanding and perspective, wisdom there on the website. So I, he also has a podcast called Youth Culture Matters, which is very good. Great. And we'll make sure there's links to those resources oh, below great. this podcast. Mm -hmm. 
All right, Matt, you've covered a lot of great ground here, and you've already done a lot of pastoral ministry in the process, even to me as I'm interviewing you. Thank you about these these issues. But I wonder, can you leave those of us parenting teenagers with a word of hope in a situation that sometimes seems uh, almost insurmountable? You are, after all, a pastor. What yeah. Do you say? Oh, yeah. You know, what you do matters. What you're doing right now matters. It may not seem like it. And Michelle and I have worked with teenagers for a long time, and I know at times they seem to indicate or communicate to us that they don't care, that they are um, sort of opting out of family events and family happenings, that they may even verbally tell you that they don't want you around. But what you do matters. Keep your goal in mind. Remember that our goal is to prepare them to glorify God with their life as they live in the adult world. It's much more complex than ever, with many more dangers than ever, but they can be the brightest light ever, right? In the darkness, the light shines the brightest. And the darker it is, the more that light is noticeable. So equip them, teach them, build into them, pray for them, and send them out to make a difference in this world. What you do really does matter. Well, thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks to those of you who have listened. And if you know of a college-bound student who's passionate about youth ministry, would you consider passing this podcast on to him or her? Because one of the things our alumni repeatedly say about their time at Cairn is that the bonds they form with professors, just like Matt, are life-changing. And no doubt there's a college-bound youth ministry major who might hear this and think, that's the place and person I want to study at and with. And I know that they won't be disappointed with that choice. And we'll also post a link below the podcast to the resources that Matt has shared. And if you comment on the podcast, we will enter you into a drawing to win a free copy of one of those resources, and we'll be happy to get that out to you. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for Matt's own Cairn 10. Ladies and gentlemen, we have another alum with us, and therefore we have another Cairn 10 uh, Dr. Matt Mikulak, who is deeply involved at the university here in so many ways, but it'll be exciting to hear a little bit about his Karen experience through the Karen 10. Matt, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Here we go. Start the clock. Who is your favorite professor? It's hard to pick just one, but if I have to pick one, I would say Dr. Paul Carlene. Which book did you read during your time that had the greatest impact on you? I would say J.I. Packer's Knowing God. What spot on campus do you remember the most fondly and why? I would have to say there's a spot outside of Dr. Williams' house where we used to play soccer on a field that was kind of sloped. That's probably my most memorable spot. Wasn't that spot. the soccer field? That <laughs> was the official <laughs> soccer field. It's going to look a lot better. It's better now and will be better still. Which class rocked you most at the core? And you get it because on this one because there's a little more background. Wow. I would probably say Greek. Dr. Carlene was my Greek professor, and because he shared his life with us as much as his love for linguistics, we didn't just learn the Greek language, but learned about linguistics, and I learned what it looked like to be a godly man. Who was your first roommate? I commuted. (laughs) But I I would have to say that the guys in A1 in Pendell adopted me, so they would have Matt in A nights when I would come over and sleep in A dorm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Nice. 
What was your favorite non-academic related thing to do while you were here as a student? Soccer and baseball. Which food in the cafeteria was your go-to? I brought my own lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever right. was in the brown bag. Right. And right. I won't bring up that thing about the turkey. Exactly. What was your favorite off-campus spot to go with friends? Wow. Hmm. I pretty much stayed on campus when okay. I, while I was here. No mm -hmm. trips to the airplane then, or anything? No. No? No. Mm -mm. And what did you mo miss most after you graduated? The people, for sure. Yeah, the people that were here, both the professors, the administration, staff, and my fellow students. And what is the one thing about Karen that you hope will never change? Their deep commitment to God and His Word. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Mikalax, Karen 10.